I'm going to be very candid with you. We are living in a computer program reality. Welcome everyone to Simulation Nation, your portal to all things virtual. I'm your host, Johnny Android, and I'm here to keep you informed about all that's happening in the metaverse. We record our episodes live in all of these every week. You can join us for free, even if you don't have a VR headset. This is true. Just log into Allspace from your laptop or PC in our event and teleport in to offer your opinion, question, or whatever else. Hey, we have a special day edition. This is 1 p.m. Pacific time for Futurosity's Flicks and Picks. Hey, we're covering PHX 1138. George found the force and brought us Star Wars. He created this intellectual sci-fi indie film. Many of you may have seen uh, this film and noticed precursors from everything to lightsabers and stormtroopers, uh, but did you ever consider that it takes place entirely in a simulation? Based on an article by our previous guest, cyberpunk author Mark Everglade, we are going to dive in and see if this theory holds any merit. Uh, here we go into Futurosity's Flicks and Picks, and to guide us is Futurosity himself. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here today. And you know what, Johnny? THX 1138, it brings back a lot of warm memories. Um, I watched the original cut way back in the day. I remember when the laser discs were going around and it was back then, you know, this is like a cult phenomenon, you know, like many people barely talked about it at the time. It was just, hey, did you know George Lucas did something else? You know, I remember yeah. American Graffiti, but this was that secret project almost, you know, this magical early first film from a 25 year old filmmaker, you know, so there's a, really? a lot to explore in this film. And, you know, to tie it all together, Futurosity and I in the meat space world went to film school together. And originally, George Lucas did this as a short film. It's his, it's his uh, thesis film from USC. So it was like every film geek and film student's dream is that your short film that you make in film school goes on to become a feature film. And then from there, it launches into other things. So it kind of it connects to us in some way as well in that regard. Um, Oh, yeah, also, it's truly epic. I also was wondering, and this goes for any of you guys. Okay, so as far as I could understand, there's three cuts of the film. There's the 1971 original cut. There was like a 1994 where he started to do some tweaking and maybe some new sound design. And then there's like a 2004 cut where he added all these special effects and created new shots and like all that kind of stuff. Um, which version did you watch? Let's start. Let's start there. Uh, when we were getting ready for this episode. I can only find the 2004 version. I technically, I would say the 1971 version is the studio cut. You know, since George Lucas did not have full directorial control at the time. So they removed, I guess, maybe five to six minutes from that version. So the one I saw from 2004 included more special edition style, you know, add-ons, you know, essentially location extensions and some visual effects, creature effects and other things that we'll talk about later. Um, so essentially, it's supposed to be George Lucas's definitive vision. But at the same time, I always think in terms of, well, the original people that worked on it didn't touch it. You know, like I always think of the original right. film as something that you would archive. And you would want to keep and make it available. But unfortunately, 2004 version is only one that's readily available for rental or for purchase. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I had the same kind of thing. I'm curious here. Who here uh, has seen this movie in the original 1971 version? Nobody. Is it, who saw the 2004 version with all the new special effects and everything? Anyone? 
Not sure. Or maybe you're just coming in to check out what we're talking about. Uh, or anyone see the 1990s version where there's apparently some little changes, but not much. Okay. So I started, I, so I bought, I, I had to rent it. I rented it from Apple TV or something. And it was like, starting to get into the, all these incredible effects. I'm like, oh no, he's done it again. George Lucas has meddled with the original. I can't, <laughs> I can't do this director's cut. I got to go find the original. So then I went onto Amazon and I rented it again because it said just like THX, not director's cut. And then it started, it was still the director's cut. And I was like, oh my God, I just bought it twice. And neither of the ones are the version I want. Then what I did is I just went, I just searched online and I found that there was essentially a bootleg version that you could uh, stream for free on some random website. So I kind of watched them in tandem to see like, it was like before he made all the tweaks and, and what he did afterwards. So that's sort of the version I ended up with. Usually we start with overall thoughts. So why don't we go there? And um, if you just want to give me what you thought of, uh, when's the last time you saw the movie and what you thought of this version? Well, last time I saw the movie, I swear it might've been on Laserdisc. It's, it seems like it might've been film school, you know, like almost 20 years ago, possibly. It's just, THX 1138 is not a movie I revisited that often. I had it years ago, you know, and you know, I had it on VHS at one point, I believe. Um, but I think I recorded it. It wasn't even like an official VHS, so quality was pretty bare. So it was that cult thing that I watched once in a blue, blue moon, but it's almost been like 15, 20 years, I think. So seeing the 2004 version, it, it, it kind of reminded me of when George Lucas went to Congress and he did this long speech about the preservation of film history and how, you know, essentially he was complaining about the colorization of black and white films by, you know, Turner um, Broadcasting. Shoot. Are you able to hear him, Shell? It... Can't hear him either. I see your speech bubble going, but I can't hear you. Oh, oh weird. Yeah. I, I see levels. Uh-oh. Yeah, I hear weird. you now. I hear you now. All right. Oh, no trouble. I'll, to... go, I'll do that one more time. I mean, yeah, let me try to get, let me just, uh, while you're, you're talking, I'm going to shrink the world and get rid of everything we don't have to have. Maybe that'll help. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. So you were saying, last I heard you were saying that uh, it was maybe a film school thing and uh, you watched it on LaserDisc and then here we are. Yeah. So it was definitely a film school thing. I watched it on LaserDisc. So it definitely was before the 2004 special edition version, which I find quite fascinating because back in the day, George Lucas, he did this long speech in front of Congress talking about preserving film history and to mm. you know get these studios and corporations out of the tampering business. It was all because of Ted Turner and his Turner Broadcasting making old black and white films and using a colorization process. And for George Lucas and many film aficionados, they saw that, you know, it's you're destroying an artifact. You know, it's just like Indiana Jones. Keep this item in a museum. You know, people are supposed to see it mm. and as it was originally created. So seeing the 2004 version, it, it was kind of an interesting experience. I'll tell you that because, you know, I have a special place in my heart for George Lucas. And I just like to see the trajectory of his career happen for more people. Because keep in mind, this first film at 25 years old in 1971, George Lucas got a chance to be mentored by Francis Ford Coppola. You know, you have Francis Ford Coppola as your executive producer on your first studio film would expect it to be something much bigger and grander. But unfortunately, 
I think it, it was more of an experiment. You know, um, THX 1138 is an experience that you have to appreciate as a filmmaking experiment. It's one of the most big budget student films ever created, essentially. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate it on that level. You know, I mean, it has some great world building. Essentially, you could think of THX 1138 as almost like a futuristic documentary because they don't explain anything. They just show you the world as it is, and they don't even have any moral judgments or even any open questions of how the world operates. It's just, this is the world. It's in the future. Deal with the rest. So as an experience, yeah, as a filmmaker and as an, you know, an admirer of filmmaking processes, I appreciate this movie on a lot of different levels. On an entertainment level, we'll get more into detail of that later. But as a filmmaker and as an artist, I, I can appreciate it. Well, you totally nailed it because um, I was, I have, you know, long time ago, I read George Lucas's biography and I happened to have it on my shelf still. And I cracked it open and was reading the THX sections. And I never found any of this online, but you totally nailed it because George Lucas himself did not call this a sci-fi film. He called it a documentary fantasy. So in his mind, he was making a documentary about something that didn't exist in its true sense. He said it was a doc, he thought it was a documentary of Los Angeles. But it was obviously done in an abstract way in the sense that everyone had to conform. Everyone had to be a certain way and they were going to how you be a filmmaker and how you can artistically express yourself and stuff like that. So you're, you're absolutely right there. Um, it, it's, you know, I think it's, 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 it's worthy of taking a moment to talk about the legacy of the film before, we even, before I even get my overall thoughts. Because it's, it's really for me also sort of what you're touching on is that the most interesting part of this movie is the legacy. So setup of the, the setup of the whole history is he, he made this little movie in, um, in USC film school, 1968 or whatever, 67, I think yeah. he won a, yeah. And then he won a scholarship to go onto the Warner brothers back lot and to just sort of shadow people and see who was around. There was almost no one there because at that time the studios were kind of falling out of favor and losing a lot of money. There was only he had a big long beard because he was sort of a young movie movement station. <laughs> Everyone else was these old, you know, you know, wise old guys. And there was one other guy with a beard. And it was Francis Coppola. He was making this movie Finian's Rainbow. They kind of sparked up a friendship. And you know, uh, you know, cut to a few years later, they decide to form a company together. And it, what I think is kind of interesting is that and it, that company was Zoetrope. This was the first movie out of American Zoetrope. So essentially, get enough money to start a company. They move out to San Francisco where they're like, we're going to escape the conformity of LA. We're going to get out to San Francisco where we can be free from the constraints of the system, the empire, you might say. And we're going to make these interesting artistic movies. Uh, and the first movie that they put all their eggs into one basket, that movie is THX 1138. And of course, what happens is it bankrupts the company, right? It fails at the box office. Uh, Warner Brothers and all these studios pull out their deals, all the money out, and they're trapped. And so George and Francis Coppola are stuck with a choice. They have to go make money. Coppola is like, oh, man, should I do this stupid gangster book? I don't know. I don't want to sell out and make a gangster movie, but I, should I do it? And George is like, kind of like, yeah, I think you got it, right? And then George is like, what should I do? And he's like, you can't be telling this, this weirdo stuff. You got to go off and make a movie that people care about, that people can relate to. Of course, Francis Coppola makes The Godfather. Lucas makes American Graffiti. And those two movies launch both of them into superstardom. So I think that's really fascinating, right? <laughs> what a, what a cool, oh, yeah. It- 
Yeah. I think it's a great reminder as well of how failure is one of the greatest ways to learn. As if THX Thirteen was a success, who knows what other six films on that deal would have come out? You know, they could end up being a disaster. They could end up having just, you know, very standardized careers. So it is quite amazing that that bad experience they had with the studio forced them to kind of spread their wings and, you know, try out new things. I mean, because I mean, the Godfather trilogy plus the original Star Wars trilogy, I mean, you can't beat that. I mean, that's an amazing way to bounce back from such a terrible situation. It's also interesting, you know, usually from a filmmaker point of view, we're always like, artistic vision to be pure and to come across. It's really interesting, though, is that both of these filmmakers didn't have their great hits until they were forced to conform a little bit. Like they were forced to work within a genre a little bit and give a little bit of an audience uh, the audience wanted and a little bit of their artistic vision. And that's when they found the perfect medium, because when they went off and tried to be just start to artists without considering the audience, like with the rain people with Coppola did and THX with uh, George, it didn't quite click. It was when they brought a little bit more of that uh, understanding of an audience into it and give them an enjoyable experience that they really exploded. So kind of, it's, it's kind of interesting that it all happens in such an unexpected way too. Like you can't really predict these kind of things. You just have to kind of go into it and see what happens. Oh, definitely. And just seeing them bounce back career-wise. And this is in the days when, remember, the studio system was crumbling. So they had to create their own opportunities because multinational corporations already bought out all the major studios. And essentially, it was all about the bottom line. So the fact they were able to bounce back and, in most cases, own their work. I mean, George Lucas owned his work from that point forward, which is a luxury very few filmmakers have. I mean, that alone is just amazing to me that somehow... Just making the right licensing deals, getting the toy money, he was able to fund essentially his dreams for the rest of his adult life. Absolutely. And, and you know, uh, how's it going, Dan? If you have any thoughts, uh, please let us know. Use the raise hand option and, and dive in. We're still on, we haven't even gotten to overall failures. There's one more thing I wanted to add to this, which I thought was really interesting looking at that um, uh, biography again, is that um, the way he described it, Coppola was this wild cowboy pirate who was just going, diving off a cliff and then figuring out how to open his parachute on the way down. And that's how he kind of blasted open the doors for this next generation of filmmakers, which included Lucas and Martin Scorsese, Brian De Palma. All these, it, it was really Francis that blasted open the door. And I thought it, it was so interesting that um, George was such a quiet, introverted, introspective guy would he have been able to break through in the same way if he wasn't in Coppola's wake? Right? Like, would, it, would, would George have been able to do it himself or did he need somebody to smash open the door so that he could go in very quietly and do his work uh, from a technical point of view? I don't know. We'll never know the answer to that, but it's very interesting. Oh, it's interesting. I mean, their careers, I mean, just legendary. So it's just fascinating when you see them reflecting on their work now. You know, George Lucas has had a few interviews over the years where he discusses the making of THX 1138. And even one he did with even Oprah not that long ago. It's just a reminder of, hey, you know what, this is phenomenal process for him. And I think, once again, I think his failure was the greatest change of his career ever. I mean, he could have just been a documentary filmmaker for the rest of his life. And it could have easily have just been that because that's kind of how he connected with Coppola by doing a documentary of, you know, um, Phineas's Rainbow. So once again, different career path, but it's all about this one experimental sci-fi film. So I can't wait to dig in because 
there's a lot to enjoy and there's a lot to talk about. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, so, so that, that gets me to my final overall, overall thoughts here, which is essentially that I feel like you, you pretty much nailed it, which is that there's, I think George does not know how to tell a story at this point in his career. Either, right. It's like, there's no momentum. There's no drive. There's the protagonist isn't really making choices. Not real, like there's a lot of Deus Ex Machina stuff going on where people just come in and make things happen, and it, and it just has no propulsion forward from a story point of view. The thing that I think comes out of this movie is his visual sophistication. It's so interesting the way he puts together a a, a super artificial sci-fi world on a shoestring budget in San Francisco. The way that he's able to utilize the uh, resources he has around him to make an otherworldly sci-fi film, I think is really the testament to his skill, his technical skill. I also think it was interesting that he was the editor on this movie. And you can tell it's a very editor-heavy movie. Like, there's a lot of cross-cutting happening. There's a lot of uh, cuts between the control center where this sort of beings are kind of manipulating the, the factory workers, and then you're cutting back to the factory. So you can always tell, you know, you know, George Lucas uh, in his earliest career was always said, oh, loves he's able to direct the robots better than he is able to direct the people. I feel like you can see oh, that no here. Doubt. Right? He's more comfortable with a telephoto lens and an editing bay than he is in actor's direction. So. And also think of the early collaborators as well, because you look at the credits, you know, you have Marsha Lucas, his wife at the time, as his assistant editor who ended up editing Star Wars and essentially story goes that she saved Star Wars from the original cut. And also, of course, Walter Murch with the sound design and sound editing. So, I mean, this, that's a great thing. We see this is like the prototypical, you know, Lucas, you know, group, you know, it's like this team of people that end up making some of the greatest work of all time only a few years later. So that's the greatest part. It's like, hey, we're seeing the foundations of Lucasfilm and LucasArts and the whole company in this one film. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, that's a, a great uh, way to dive in here. So let's just take it to the plot. Um, <laughs> right. So plot. Do you want to uh, do you want to give us a, a, a rundown of the plot here? General. Well, I'll be honest, this is going to be a short one, to be honest, because yeah. essentially <laughs> plot of the movie, it's essentially a world building exercise that ultimately ends in a chase. That's the best way to describe it. So essentially, THX 1138 takes place. It was a social-based sci-fi film. It definitely has a social message about the future. And it's essentially a future where people's under control on multiple levels by the government. They're controlled physically by the spaces that, that they have to live in. They can't freely marry. They can't have sex. They can't have children under, unless it's, you know, approved by the government. And same thing as their emotions. Their emotions are under control via chemical subjugation. Essentially, they open up their medicine cabinet, and the medicine cabinet talks back to them. There's a live video feed, and they have to like direct their medication as they're, you know, as they get checked on. You know, their levels of hormones are remotely checked as well. So if they know certain brain chemicals are being expressed or you're showing stress. Once again, you have to check and get more medication from this automated system. So it's the ultimate surveillance state. It's 1984 times 1,000. And essentially, we have THX 1138. He's a person with no name. He has a mate, quote unquote, but it's actually a roommate. You know, so he actually lives with a woman, but they don't really have a romantic connection. For some reason, he starts noticing that he's starting to feel ill. He's having headaches. He's sweating. Something very strange is happening in his workplace. 
the craziest thing about the workplace is he's actually a technician who assembles the same androids who control the people. So essentially, there's an android police force that's run by the government, and his job is to do specialty radioactive, you know, construction of some sort of these robots and androids. Well, over time, because of his change of medication that he doesn't know about, he ends up making a mistake. People die because of radiation poisoning within this humongous conglomerate that's making the same system that's controlling them, essentially. Imagine if Neo was operating the Matrix himself. Same, same, same point. THX 38 realizes that it's his roommate, his quote-unquote girlfriend, who's been altering his regimen of drugs and make him have emotions again. So they end up having a very short love affair after they end up being free of the chemical subjugation. But unfortunately, they're under surveillance 24-7. So the creepiest thing about it is one of the people that was surveilling him, played by Donald Pleasance, decides to change roommates, quote-unquote, as he starts having feelings, which I believe are feelings for THX 1138. This individual's been watching him, having sex with his wife, her roommate, decides, you know what? I'm going to change their lifestyle. I'm going to live with him instead. So he becomes jealous. So we end up having this escalation of the government learning that these people are coming alive and normal, and then they also have to make it till they make it. You know, living in that world off the drugs, he suddenly realized THX can't even do his job without the drugs. Literally cannot move, you know, components of the android into the proper place without the drugs. It's such a particularly meticulous job that he has to have full control over his emotions. So ultimately, he gets exposed from an accident and gets arrested. And the whole thing is, you just see THX getting dehumanized to other beyond levels that we've never seen before in film. Essentially, it's classic insane asylum, everyone in white, white walls, all under the guard of people with stun batons. So of course, he ends up escaping and we get to see his adventure and the crazy chase throughout this futuristic world as just trying to get away. But the most messed up thing about it is he doesn't escape freedom because of his own choices. It's not like he was you know, a revolutionary, he did something amazing, there's no big fight scene. Pretty much the bad guys just give up because of budget expenditure. <laughs> it costs yeah. too much to bother to get the guy. So they just turn around. So it's, it's like the, it's the most anticlimactic, but also awesome at the same time kind of choices that they make by saying this system is so rigid and so controlled that they can't even bother certain crimes because eh, it's going to cost too much. If we hit past 6% of our budget, it doesn't matter anymore. So I think that's the greatest thing about it. It's an exploration of you know, consumer culture, you know, control mechanisms by the government, and also social control, how others in society will try to enforce those same rules on others. It gave us a lot of those different tastes of classic sci-fi tropes in a very visually stunning way. Um, that's the best way to describe it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I, I agree. I, I like the, the world. world it's, calling it a world-building exercise is really uh, spot on because I feel like it's like a, a perfect combination between Brave New World, you take a pill to uh, create a, a status quo inside you and kind of uh, an equilibrium. I think one of the pills is called equilibrium that they're taking. So it's kind of like, okay, it's, it's going to, you know, make a, a perfect machine in this uh, giant, uh, or I guess a robot in this giant machine, a clog in the machine that is this society. And then there's also the 1984 element where Big Brother is always watching. 
it kind of mashes those two dystopias together uh, into, into this new pattern. Um, the other thing uh, that I thought was interesting was that so this is 1971, and if we put ourselves in the minds of people in 1970 or 1971, everything then was hippies, long hair, beards, right, stock. And, and I love that George was so counterculture, he even went against that counterculture. <laughs> like he was like oh yeah i'm good right like i'm going to i not only against the machine of hollywood but i'm also against sort of conformity of the hippie i'm going to make a movie that looks completely different from all of those things and have everyone shaved bald and have everyone in this white white space and all that so i think that's just such a cool it just shows the rebellious streak inside george that would then lead him on to be somebody who's like i'm going to control the merchandising technology company the sound company the writing i'm going to control the, the entire franchise like screw everybody no one knows how to do it the way i know how to do it right um so I, I, oh i yeah. totally agree ah, so I, I think that's really cool so okay so let's do a little thought experiment here the way that you know the way that this movie could have worked if he had known how to tell a story could have been the, the pieces are there he just kind of fumbled it a little bit, in my opinion. So, like, let's say there's a character who becomes disenfranchised with being a, a worker on an assembly line, has a little bit of a crush with this uh, his his uh, roommate. So he decides, I'm going to stop taking the pills out of an act of rebellion. I'm going to see what happens. And then he's, you know, and then it's like his choice to be able to do that instead of almost like the Adam and the Eve here, where like all of Christianity blames Eve for humans' fall from grace. And it's like the same thing happens here, right? It's like poor La. All she wanted to do is like love this guy. And now she's the villain who, uh, you know, brings him down. But he had made the choice to act on that love, stop taking the pills, rebel against the system, and then to try to escape it would have been so much more of a propulsion for the story, so much more of a momentum, and so much more of an emotional connection to the main character as opposed to the way it is, which is like, really nilly, well, this kind of happens to our main character. His pills get flipped, you know. Was, and then this kind of happens. He kind of drops, he drops the, the um, uranium, uh, right? And then like, oh, this, and then he gets caught. And then this kind of, it's like he's not in charge. He's not in control of his uh, actions at any of the points, basically. Oh, I fully agree. At every point in the story, always something else comes upon him you know um, THX 1138 doesn't make his own choices and that's the one issue with the, the movie is too passive because I would have loved to see more of THX and his roommate pretending to still be cogs in the machine you know being mm -hmm. off their drugs while still trying to live day-to-day -day lives without other people knowing like that mm -hmm. is the more interesting story it's like oh people have to put on a mask and that's what we already do anyway you know office culture you know you have version of yourself at home, you have a version of yourself at the office. I mean, that principle has been around since post-industrial revolution. So, I mean, there's a lot of concepts where George Lucas tapped the very surface, but he didn't want to go deeper um, story-wise. And pretty much, remember, this movie is like 88 minutes long, but allegedly the script might have been only about 50 pages, you know, the script that he wrote with Walter Murch. So, I mean, mm -hmm. it was, there's a lot of filler throughout the story. I mean, the chase scene I never seen a chase scene with filler chase, you know, this movie has. it. Yeah. And you know, it's, if you look at his trajectory, I feel like, okay, so he had a, he had a, obviously a technical mastery in this movie in a, in a love for sci-fi. 
Next movie, he hired Gloria Katz and Bill Hayek, who would write Eric and Graffiti. And they kind of showed him the ropes of how to create emotional characters, how to create a storyline where characters have choices and have flaws and things like that. And then he married those two movies together, took the, the sci-fi technological elements of THX, the, the friendships, the relatability, and the emotion of American Graffiti, mashed those together to make Star Wars. That's where he sort of learned art of storytelling because he was the writer of Star Wars, the sole writer. So I think it's, it's, it's really interesting to see the building blocks, like you were saying, the foundations of his career and how it, it would evolve um, together. But for sure, he does not have the storytelling down yet. There's no, no question about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I always say a movie fails at any point in which a character enters the picture that you've never seen before. And their first line is they declare who they are and where they come from. And then, you know, just kind of go along with it. I would say, hold on, if you have to announce yourself, it's like a bad editorial cartoon where they have to write the name of the person that the cartoon's supposed to be about because it, most people just wouldn't get it. I'm like, if you have to have labels on an editorial cartoon or a character to say, I am so-and-so, this is what I do, and here's what I'm about to do. That's always a failure in storytelling. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit later about our, you know, hologram friend who kind of pulls that. <laughs> Yeah, well, let, let's move on to character then, because um, there's essentially, I would say, four main characters, right? I mean, we've, let's start with, um, with they call him uh, Thex. So THX is pronounced Thex in this movie. Um, so we sort of have touched on him. He really doesn't have much agency. I love what you're saying about how the ending is just like the bad guys just give up because he ran out of budgetary concerns. But really, it's also George that ran out of budget. <laughs> Right, he couldn't like exactly right. It's kind of a combo, Um, and there's nothing else to say about Thex. I think that it's interesting that um, the name Thex apparently comes from when he was in college. His telephone number was eight four nine one one three eight, and eight four nine the 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 corresponding letters are THX. So apparently, Uh that's where it came from. but the interesting thing is that the three main characters are called Thex, his girlfriend is called La, and the uh, Donald Pleasance character is called Sen. And Walter Birch says that he always believed that George thought that Thex represented sex, a sex drive in humans. Mm-hmm. La represented love, the love drive, and Sen represented sin, which is why he's always caught up with Ohm, that Jesus hologram. Yes. He represents the sin in this world. And I, and also, I, I, it, apparently, the uh, Sin character is homosexual. That's why he was caught and put into prison. It wasn't clear when I was watching the movie that that was the case. I only read that in the biography afterwards. Did that, was that clear to you, or is that something you had to Yeah, because I knew he was jealous. Because after he, um, remember, remember, Sin watched you know, THX have sex with his roommate. And he watched mm-hmm. the whole thing and he didn't report it because remember, he's a monitor. So his job would have been to report any, you know, unauthorized activity like that. any showing of emotion, you know, sexual desire, anything like that would have been reported. He didn't report it. And instead, he used his power to change the roommate location. So that way he could be roommates with Robert Duvall's character, THX. Mm-hmm. That was when I said, ah, I see what they're going for. 1971 was quite progressive because, I mean, Sin isn't necessarily the bad guy of the movie. You know, he's he's partially an antagonist, but, you know, it's kind of nice that they said, hey, you know, you're going to explore other people and realize that humans are still humans no matter what their circumstances are. And people still have feelings. So I like the fact that there was multiple characters who came to their feelings and try to find ways to express them. 
Now, with love, she expressed it the best way she could by, you know, having sex, getting pregnant by THX. Sin is part of the system. So his reaction to his emotions is to use the system to his advantage, take advantage of his emotions. So it's kind of interesting how the... But then the movie didn't explore it. It's there if you kind of reach. (laughs) Yeah. Well, also, um, when Sen goes to the hologram Jesus at the end, and he's saying to the Jesus character, everyone should just be able to love who they want to love. That's sort of another uh, hint as to what is uh, going on with that character. Um, Anything else you want to add with La, or should we move on to the hologram friend? Well, with with La, the funny thing is her alteration of, um, you know, THX's pills, it, it, they didn't really explain it. It was just kind of like, hey, I'm just going to put a, you know, a multi-pilotol and replace it with a green one. You know, we just kind of saw the manipulation, but wasn't really sure. It's like, well, are you changing the order of the drugs he takes? Are you trying to wean him? Like, they, they didn't really explore that. It was just like, he just had the wrong combo and started acting out. So I, I wish they gave us a little bit more of her. It's unfortunate because like she's the only, you know, major you know woman character in the film but she didn't have all that much agency essentially got fridged i mean she disappeared and i guess they, they was supposed to be her body in that little sack or whatever they showed a still image of so i guess she was you know killed by the government because she was pregnant illegally so i, I kind of wish she had a little more agency because it, the actress i think has just an amazing look i mean her eyes are so expressive i mean it was great casting but i really wish they gave us a little more more meat for her to chew on to and have a chance to act a little bit more well apparently in the script uh she actually uh is imprisoned for uh mixing up the pills and then like raped and murdered and thank god they cut that out because that would have been a really hard seat to watch but then um but if you remember at the end also they come across these embryos and apparently she was reborn into an embryo right like she is refabricated Mm. i believe something like uh, that Something like that, yeah. Or it was like, or it was her unborn, unborn child that was the embryo. Um, I think it was her though. I, I think they were saying. I, I feel the same way. It's like I didn't want to read it up after. I was like, let me just how I feel when I watch it. I wasn't sure because it fit into the whole simulation question. I was like, oh, do they like download it into the fetus, or is that mm. the same fetus that THX you know created with her? I I wasn't sure, so I just kind of went with it. Where I'm like, oh, they, that's her in some capacity. Just make it another one. That's why I assume. Right. right. Uh, well, we'll get we'll touch on the simulation question in a second. It's an interesting one. Uh, we'll, we'll save it a little bit. Let's go on to the hologram. Speaking of simulations, <laughs> let's go <laughs> on to the the hologram character here. So after they're sort of sent to this uh, sort of I don't know what do you call it brainwashing center in the middle of nowhere, and they meet these. Uh, edge dwellers, these little creatures that become like essentially what is the um, prototype for a Jawa or what I saw is like an Ugnaught from Empire Strikes Back. Those little, and they're the exactly. only characters who have hair, right? In the entire movie, they're the only ones who have hair. Uh, those characters were kind of quirky. Yeah, that was one of those 2004 edits for sure. Because I think he, he digitized some of those monkey-like creatures and yes. they, they were, it, it was quite unforgiving looking. Um, yeah, because I, I remember the originals you know, little people in suits, I believe. Yep. Um, so uh, it, it, they made some changes for the better, unquote. <laughs> well, so I watched, like I said, I, I sort of kind of watched them in tandem because I saw these creatures and then 
the the ones that they had they were just they just were bearded uh, little people like they were beard you yeah. know it's so, <laughs> so but um <laughs> in, in any case the other thing that they changed with that I, I thought was so funny was hind and talk about uh, a, a homeschool uh trope but like okay behind the, the holographic jesus is just a lizard just like a pet lizard that's like actually the jesus yes. voice and in in the read in the 2004 version they added these alien kind of things on this but in the yeah. version, it's just a lizard <laughs> yeah. just they, they, but it's so funny they try to make the lizard look more alien by giving like what's those things on the octocodal or oxodal or those weird you know newt things i don't know what but that's it's like exactly. one of those unnecessary special edition kind of things. Let's make the lizard look more alien. Instead, you keep looking, hold on, is that a real lizard? You know what I mean? It's It wasn't okay. um, you know, sci-fi enough to, it kind of broke itself in a weird way. Where no. You could have no. just left it as a um, lizard and people just say, hey, that's weird, futuristic. But by adding extra stuff to it, it made it stand out even more, but in the wrong way. Yeah, yeah um, so uh, before, I'm just noticing here, I can't even answer the tool to get this person to oh, take the mic. Are you, able, my cursor, are you able to do that? Actually, I can't touch menus anymore. I can't touch menus either. Sorry, uh, people out there. For oh. some reason, we can't. Everything's glitching and we can't answer your question. It's gone anyway. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, Sorry. Okay, so we were back to the uh, this hologram character. What do you? What's your thoughts on him? Well, once again, when a character just appears out of nowhere and declares, Greetings, I am a hologram, and I'm going to help you escape. I know where the exit is. Wait, hold on a sec. When did they mm -hmm. set up holographic creatures okay. and beings in sentient, and also not only sentient, but able to become a physical form? Um, the only holograms that we've, that we've seen so far in a movie was uh, essentially their version of television, which is this you know, bizarre, either hyper-violent or very sterile comedy or, um, you know, these you know, um, stripper kind of videos you could watch. Like, it's like you only have three channels, you know, that were approved. Right. You can literally watch a man getting beaten by the police, you know, right. watch some, you know, dancers and, you know, that are nude, or, you know, you know, Jay Leno of the future kind of thing. You only have three choices. <laughs> right. But I assume those are all real people. They never established that any of those things were artificial entities. So when this man runs out of nowhere in this you know, sanitarium, you know, like... Essentially, they kind of made it look like a mental hospital. So I assumed, oh, well, maybe he's off the meds and maybe he's experiencing right. some you know, delusions. They didn't establish it whatsoever. So it's almost like you watch, like, you know, one flew the cuckoo's net and decide, I believe this character's delusions. OK, let's continue that story. It was hard to tell at first. Ah, I agree. It's like, was he insane? Was he actually hologram? Because later on, he eats, eats the same Thing, or he drinks for the same food or, or drink that uh, Thex was drinking, and it's like, oh wait a minute, how could a hologram drink? And is that mean <laughs> that also Thex is a hologram? They're both drinking the same simulated drink, or what? I'm not quite sure. Uh, that's really where we come to the question of the simulation. I don't know. Are you ready to dive into that uh, right now? Should we do it? Or oh please, or... yeah, I'll dig okay. in. Because I mean, you can right. interpret it the whole movie in a few ways to. The simulation hypothesis. So I'd love to hear your take. Yeah. So let's. So I guess that sort of brings us to the text. So, okay. I had never before thought of THX one three eight as a simulation. And then Mark Everglade, who was a previous guest on this podcast, uh, wrote an article about how actually THX is a sort of prototypical 
um, cyberpunk movie that deals with simulations. And I was like, mind blown. Like, is this really real? Like, I don't, I, I never thought of it that way. So I really watched um, this time going through with that interpretation. And I have to say, I'm still a skeptic. I'm still a skeptic. I don't think that George Lucas intended it to be a simulation. I think that he intended it to be a society where there was just these robots in control of everything. And then the people were uh, the assembly line workers who were creating more robots to put in control. And they didn't want anyone to act out of their sort of imprisonment. And so they uh, gave them these pills and they gave them these like, let's not forget masturbation machines. <laughs> <laughs> that was an odd inclusion. They're not allowed to have desire, but you could have a machine that kind of helps out a little. That was funny. <laughs> I guess because it's still a it's still a uh, a, a physical need is to uh, I guess that's how they sort of thought about it. And by the way, in the original uh, cut, there is no masturbation machine. There is sort of pornographic material that they watch, and then uh, Thex is just sort of sitting back insinuating that he may be masturbated but in their new cut they made this like suction cup masturbation machine yeah like a, whole thing. <laughs> like a rube so, goldberg machine it's a little more elaborate you would expect for you know a, a later edit <laughs> okay so so uh before i i give any more thoughts that idea of this being a simulation do you agree with it or not actually i do not agree because i think in terms of the time period so 1971, this would have been written, you know, late 60s, you know, they started putting together the script and basic concept. I think what people do is they use the modern concepts of technology and make it as if it's analogous to something that really didn't exist at the time. You know, we think of, oh, they're taking the pills. Oh, well, hey, they took pills in the Matrix and the pill was code. Right. I'm like, yes, but I don't think George Lucas in 1971 was thinking of pills as code and that, you know, the individuals or almost like a Tron-like environment, because a lot of people try to reinterpret it into almost like Tron. Like all these people are part of a mechanism and they're building these robots or whatever, but they're actually artificial. I, I don't believe that's possible. I don't think that was the mindset. I think it, we're definitely following 1984, Aldous Huxley style, you know, Brave New World style. I think that was their influence, not this technology that is to come you know, decades later. I mean, yes, if this came out 10 years later and people talked about Oh, maybe that is a virus. Maybe that is something artificial. Like, you know, let's say, you know, the the police serve as essentially like antibodies for the system. But I don't think they had any analogies like that. No intentions whatsoever. So I don't believe. Yeah. I think it's more of a yeah, reinterpretation so that was made in the last 20 years. Yeah. So, so Mark, we, we love you. Uh, we love thought-provoking, and it allowed us to watch this movie with new eyes. However, in the final analysis, we may have to say that you're bringing uh, today's eyes to a movie that didn't intend uh, what you're possibly seeing. Absolutely uh, agree. The only, the only thing that the logic that didn't make sense and maybe fit the simulation model was that this hologram was, was, uh, looked like he was eating and drinking the same things as Thex was drinking, so that it makes you think, Maybe Thex is a hologram, but then it also could be maybe the guy who says he's a hologram is actually just insane. Maybe he just is uh, confused and maybe he's not actually a hologram. We never know. We don't, and, now, one interesting note, though, remember when they faked their deaths and they you know, laid out in the, um, you know, the hologram and um, uh, Thex, 
Remember when they pinched their ears with like a little tag representing they were dead? DHX screamed when he got his. The hologram didn't make a noise. So mm. that's one of those things where I'm like, well, I wonder what that was supposed to tell us. You know, it's like, oh, the hologram can't feel pain. Is he less than mm. human? There's so many weird mm. things that are up in the air that just weren't explained. It's a documentary, and some documentaries don't explain everything. It's like a verite futuristic thing. <laughs> Uh, but then it's like, okay, but if you're a hologram, how can you have mass? And you, why wouldn't you just be swiped through, right? So that doesn't, it's not, the, the, for what, so the, the understanding we have of the definition of hologram is not that character. If that character had mass that you would touch and you could put a, a, a earring on and all that kind of stuff where that wouldn't be the case with a hologram. <laughs> no, I totally agree with that. Oh right. my goodness. It, um, it's actually, oh, please. Go ahead. No, I actually kind of find it funny as well. When you think of this hologram, um, the fact that the hologram has to eat, the hologram is imprisoned once again. So I'm like, hold on. So a hologram became real, and then the government decided to imprison the hologram. I mean, it would have been more convincing if he literally had like the letter H on his head, like, um, what was that, Red Dwarf, that uh, British sci-fi show, where holograms look just like people, they just have the letter H on their foreheads. That would almost be more convincing if he just had a jewel or a symbol or something on his head to say, hey, I'm yeah. not exactly human. I would have gone yeah. with it. It's like, okay, he has a square on his head. Okay, he's different. Yeah. But they didn't yeah. offer us that. Yeah. Um, so we usually talk about the point, like the theme of the of the movie, but we sort of have, have gone through that. It's obviously about individualism versus, you know, uh, you know, no diversity and, and no individualism versus the opposite of that. There's, you know, they're creating this world where there's no sex allowed, no enjoyment, all of that. And then they're trying to break free and be individual. So it's a very 60s counterculture message. Uh, so I don't think we need to tap too much into that. Um, but I'm curious, you know, the thing I, I had the most fun doing watching this movie was, where are the things that you can find in Star Wars? Right? Like, what was the, what were the elements here that later became something in Star Wars? Do you notice? Or which did oh, you notice? Oh, sound effects. I would definitely effects, say the sound totally. effects. I heard lightsabers. Walter Merge was, you know, opening up that toolbox of sound effects nice and early. And I definitely, you know, like stun batons with the, you know, very polite, you know, Android police. Definitely had that little, you know, lightsaber charge up sound. I mean, overall, but the only thing is, since the 2004 version, I'm not sure if Walter Merch went into sweeten the audio. But that's the hard part to judge because, you know, we don't know how much George Lucas decided to change. Overall, yeah, I felt like you know, those early prototypical sound effects from Walter Merch, I mean, he's brilliant when it comes to sound editing and Foley effects. I definitely felt that, that all the way through. Well, it, we, we actually can find the evidence because there is that bootleg copy online. And I can tell you, because that was one of the things I heard this lightsaber noise. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. So I went to the other <laughs> version. The other version is like 10%. Like you really have to use your imagination to hear a lightsaber where it's so it augmented that a lot. And I think ah. it's, I, I, I really don't like that, that George is doing this because they even changed uh, the edge dweller characters. What are they called? The shell dwellers, the ones who are on the outside, yes. those little creatures. Changed them apparently to be called Wookiees. Like, dude, come on, what? give it a break. <laughs> yeah, give it, give it a break. Like, we don't need everything to tie into your legacy of star wars and like just let it be <laughs> come on he's That's too much hilarious. of a puppet master trying to control his his the message around his films you know 
Yeah, that's um, that's actually quite funny. <laughs> ah, brutal. Um, okay, so the so what are some other ones? The fact that they're making C three POs essentially is kind of crazy. Oh, and they made them look even more three PO like in you know the digital version because they extended the sets and make you know the warehouse and the building process look a little more elaborate. And yeah, the head looks just like C three PO. They're gold. Even the wiring looks more C three PO like you know because you remember C three PO always had like the multicolored wiring. It, they a lot of it. Yeah, he definitely borrowed. So much from that. Okay, here's another one that, that totally pissed me off. The stormtrooper dudes, those androids with the uh, those batons, like you're saying. Why did they have one of them have the voice of Obi Wan Kenobi? The hell is that? Was that my you imagination? I wasn't sure. See, that's funny because I wasn't sure if it was like sound editing. So, like, hold on, I don't believe that they were connected. In 1971. I don't believe that Alec Guinness and Lucas had any involvement. Probably not. So I'm assuming they must have re-edited sound bits yeah, of him in did. the new cut. That's yeah. so bizarre. Yeah, the old one, it sounded like just like a normal person. And then the new one sounds like Obi-Wan from beyond the four, like in his force ghost state. It's like, <laughs> what? Why? Why is this happening? I such don't a, understand. It's, such a, it's almost like when you want to have an inside joke, but it's only for yourself. That's kind of what George Lucas does sometimes, where it's like, no one else will get the joke, but he'll chuckle. Uh, or he, yeah exactly um, okay well one other thing which i totally forgot about are you i don't know if you're a nine inch nails fan hello there um, is, uh, yes. um i don't know i don't know if you're a nine inch nails fan but there's that clip of the beating that is, uh, uh the, of the character getting beaten that is the sample that was used at the beginning of the nine inch nails song from like the 90s you're right yeah oh my goodness you're right and i, I heard that i was like so oh my funny. god yeah I actually, I liked that sequence, um, you know, essentially it's the classic couples fighting over the remote kind of thing. But in this case, mm-hmm. DHX wanted to watch the guy getting beaten, which just cracked me. It was like, well, I don't want to watch Leno. I want to watch the guy getting beaten by the cops. Turn it back. Okay. Just yeah. a funny little moment. Unintentionally funny. <laughs> yeah. it, uh, as far as there's a few of the Star Wars questions. So obviously you've touched on the... the the batons, the, I, I, those are very much, I think, prototypes for lightsabers. That's sort of what lightsabers became, right? And then a lot of the, the, the Death Star controls are very much the way that the people in this society are, are controlling everyone. Um, then oh, even that- the World War II style, you know, headphones. Like, sometimes I know some, George Lucas loves like World War II military designs, like, like the, you know, the helicopter pilot style earphones he would use. So they would use like real like surplus military gear, and you know, of course, Star Wars. That a lot of those weapons were straight up just surplus military items. You know, some of them look like you know regular guns. They just added a couple tubes to make them look a little more futuristic. But yeah, they were essentially yeah old surplus stuff. And I like that aesthetic. It was like a used feature. You know, George Lucas in 1971 had a chance to recreate that that vision because think of the movies at the time, like sci-fi movies and the early early 70s late 60s it was still in that you know post 50s everyone wearing like aluminum foil looking outfits very shiny and clean mm-hmm. so he started using this like you know discarded feature with like oh let, yeah let's uh, use these surplus buttons from you know the the button board from the nuclear site you know like that kind of stuff so that's a great thing yeah. every button looks real you can tell it's been used for years well, one of the one of the cool trivia things uh, and how they got the production value for the tunnels at the end, those were the unfinished part 
uh, train tunnels that he they weren't in operation yet, so he was able to use them in 1969, which is kind of crazy. Think that you know, oh, yeah. he's just using yeah, just using the resources he has and turning it into sort of a sci-fi flavored feel. It's really uh, clever. Oh, and I think it works that documentary feel because now all would have been you know blue screen it would have been like real engine you know something artificial so it's nice that he was shooting in real locations and doing something that still looks futuristic you know they didn't have to add on all those extra magical ilm touches it was just a dirty tube and you know, some foam panels and a couple things make it look futuristic i mean very simple but quite beautiful i mean that that sequence i rewatched chase because i love like the those really crazy cars like the supercars you know, they're using they souped up. I'm not sure what kind of car. I know it was like Yamahas with the you know, those cool bikes that they were driving, but I'm not sure what brand of car it was. But it's quite beautiful. A couple updates, and hey, it looks like a future car to me. You know, even in yeah. since 1971 to now, it still looks looks futuristic. I mean, it worked. Yeah. Now, see, once again, George knew he knows machines, he knows cars, he knows he knows you know weapons, he knows robots, he knows those things really, really well. Humans, not so much. But people, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the one other interesting tidbit I found was that apparently, you know, when he's escaping and he finds the shell dweller at the end when the, the shell dweller kind of attacks him, um, apparently yeah. at that moment, he originally in the script fell into a trash compactor and it was starting to close in on him, <laughs> uh, but he couldn't afford it. And so he used, used that in Star Wars uh, a few years later. Let's do wow score. <laughs> wow. 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 Score time. And wow's best movie ever. Zero wow's. Movie sucked. Where do you put it? Well, I'll give it as far as understanding George Lucas's vision and seeing how his vision developed. I think this is a movie. It's great to watch. You know, this is a great film school movie. Um, I would definitely tell people to compare the original if you could find it to the 2004 version, just explore, you know, how, how an artist can go back to their work and what changes that they decide to make. I mean, it's great for that. As far as entertainment value, not as much, but as an exploration, I'll give it a solid six. It's a fascinating exploration. It's fascinating to learn about the process of making the film, George Lucas's career, seeing him interact with his early collaborators and seeing his collaborators grow with him, you know, like Walter Murch, you know, just seeing his sound work develop from 1971 into the late 70s into the 80s. It's it's a great leap forward. So I enjoy it on that level. But as far as the story itself, I would have rated it lower. As far as an experience and as a film buff, six seems pretty solid. Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it. I, I, I agree that you have to bifurcate the two uh, options. One is uh, would you recommend this being a fan of Star Wars and wanting to know everything about that legacy and how that came to be? And I would say it's a must watch. Like just, it's so interesting seeing the prototypes, lightsabers, the prototype C-3PO's, the prototype Jawas, all that stuff, super important. But if, if this movie is not made by George Lucas, I watched it, what would I give it? That's what this score is. And this score is, and I would not... I've enjoyed this movie fortunately it still is beautiful and there's a really interesting shots um but for all those reasons we talked about there's zero momentum there's zero emotional connection to the characters some logic holes that don't quite work very when you go so one of the things he tried to do in the 2004 um version is to open it up a little bit because 
really does feel claustrophobic in the old version, but not in necessarily a good way. Feels like, oh, it was constrained by budget, so he could only shoot this angle and then that angle and then that angle, but there's no interconnecting tissue. But you're constantly jumping from thing to thing, and there's no there's no cause and effect, it feels like, between those shots. It just feels like a, a an editor who is almost doing um, you know a documentary, like you're saying, to create a pastiche of a world doesn't doesn't have a through line that you follow and you're engaged with i'm giving it a five i think that's totally fair i mean especially when you think of intentions versus the ultimate movie that we have i mean they reduced the images that you're saying that were so claustrophobic and small by almost 40 percent to add additional height um you know with set extension technology in the 2004 version and the more you look at it you realize yeah he had very limited space because the locations he was using, like the, you know, the laboratory, for example, the nuclear um, materials that they used for a couple shots, you know, for the, um, you know, the manufacturing process scenes. Uh, essentially, yeah, he only had limited areas to shoot because it would have shown, you know, modern day looking technology. So his angles were definitely focused on, you know, he only had like three or four shots he could possibly use without, you know, exposing the material. So I think seeing the the newer version, I think it's definitely worth it for a first-time viewer. Maybe to watch the original if you're really a deep film buff and want to learn more. I would give it that. Cool. All right. Well, um, it's been a hot minute since we've done a, a Flicks and Picks Futurosity. I thoroughly enjoyed this. I thoroughly liked going back into it and, and talking with you about it here. Uh, if people wanted to continue the discussion, where can they reach out to you? Oh, please reach out to me on Instagram. I'm at Futurosity VR. I love to chat about all things virtual reality. I love also everything related to AI art and more. So please reach out. All right. Well, thank you everybody for teleporting into this special noon edition of the Worldcast of Simulation Nation. Whether you're with us in virtual reality and getting all glitchy, listening to the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or watching Inglorious Technicolor on YouTube, and remember to our Instagram at the Simulation Nation here at Simulation VR and our Discord server. Then join us next week for our interview with Floating uh, with uh, Floating Points Digital Art Gallery. Uh, until then, stay plugged, my friends.